Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have little ones up through sixth grade and they'd like them to be in Sunday school, they can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, pick up in verse 7. Will you do that with me? If you're a guest here with, with us today, we're glad that you're here. We hope it's been a blessing for you so far, that your heart has been drawn towards worship. And now, as we've done all those things, we've, we've uh, confessed and repented and we've done the things we need to do, which is really the reason why we go through the things we do at the beginning for in, uh, introspection and, and some reflection, is to get to the part where we get to God's Word and we can read it and we understand it's for us. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? God's plan for a healthy church, a continued study through First and Second Corinthians. We're in Second Corinthians now, chapter 12. Uh, God's purposes and difficulty is our new section. I'd like you to read, if you would, uh, in your copy of the Word of God, starting in chapter 12 and picking up, uh, really, in verses back up to verse 5. On behalf, of, on behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. Verse 6-4, if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I'll be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Verse 10, therefore... I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's stop right there. Winston Churchill, one of the men from history that I admire, and I, I mention him often to you, was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? It's quite flattering, replied Churchill. But whatever I feel, whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. Alex Haley, the author of Roots, was reported to have had a picture in his office showing a turtle sitting on top of a fence. The picture, he said, was there to remind him of a lesson he learned long ago. If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help. So Alex would say, anytime I start thinking, wow, isn't this marvelous, look what I've done, I look at that picture and remember how this turtle, me, got up on top of that post. And I think it, it really uh, relates well to Paul's approach to all of this. As we've gone through this, and if you've been with us for any length of time, and if you haven't, you can catch up, Spotify or online on YouTube. But as we've gone through this, we've, we've seen a number of things that Paul could have said and that he did not say. And we saw last week that humility really marked Paul as a faithful minister and in this first century church, a true apostle. Paul has moved from relaying to the church some of the physical things that he had to endure as opposed to telling them all of his accomplishments. He really related well, uh, and was, this was really proof of his apostleship. We saw from Matthew chapter 10 a number of months ago, Matthew chapter 12 or 16, we saw, um, behold... I tell you, I send you out as sheep uh, in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. 
So Jesus is talking to his disciples. They will be the ones who will carry the message. Paul, uh, we've made this argument already, is the last of the apostles to come through. This is what Jesus said would be their lot. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And that certainly describes Paul's ministry, does it not? Paul spent a lot of time uh, in court. He spent a lot of time making a testimony before Gentiles. He certainly fulfilled Jesus' prophecy about what would happen to true apostles. And then this part, you'll be hated by all because of my name. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough that the disciple become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they've called me the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of the household? And these are the things that Paul talked about. So these are the things that we understand uh, are part of his life. This is how he proved to the church he was a true apostle. Why? Because his life really fulfilled what Jesus said the life of his apostles would fulfill. So these were the marks of the true apostles. So when Paul is boasting, he boasts in those things. And so in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, which we just finished up not that long ago, he says, he says, um, are they servants of Christ? Look there if you would. Are they servants of Christ? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. Uh, I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, oft in danger of death. Uh, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. So Paul's talking about things that no, no false apostle is going to talk about. He's talking about how the things uh, have gone down for him. The Jews lashed me 39 time, three time, five times, 39 times, three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I spent in the deep. Verse 26, I've been in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Look at verse 27. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, oft without food, cold and exposure. Verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without my being weak, he said. Who's led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. So these are the things that he boasts in. He boasts in his weaknesses. He boasts in the things that uh, to the outsider, he's out of control. These are not the things that a false apostle would do. They would never claim these kinds of things. They want to be liked. They're part of the world system. It's the reason why false teaching and false churches do well. It, Satan doesn't have to oppose them because they're not doing what they should do. But Paul, on the other hand, is coming to the church and saying, listen, I'm a true apostle. These things happened to me. What Jesus said would happen was what was certainly fulfilled in my life. And then he kind of recounts that for us back in, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Now we come to chapter 12, and he's moved on to recount some other things that have happened to him. And, and the way he recounts them, again, shows his humility. And we're going to see that same pattern again as he begins to recount these other things. I hate boasting. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. And, and we see that in, in how he begins to recount an important vision uh, and revelation he was able to experience. And he says this. He says, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago. And he refers to himself indirectly as a man in Christ an ordinary believer, redeemed by grace through faith. He didn't get to experience anything he's about to say because he was someone special. He was just such a man, an ordinary Christian. We see that repeated numerous times as we get into this passage. Saved by grace, uh, and then traveled to and entered the heavenly dwelling of God. And we saw that it was likely sometime just before he was launched into his ministry in Acts chapter 13. The Lord gave him this trip to heaven. We looked at that last week. 
And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or I do not know, or out of the body I don't know, God knows such a man was caught up to heaven. And we can see just by the way he explains it, he's not going to receive any accolades from false teachers and some of the church who've been taken captive by them because he doesn't even know if he was there in person. He doesn't know if it was just his spirit. He doesn't know what's going on. I was just caught up, he says, caught away. It has its root. It has to do with choosing, and it has to do ta- with taking for oneself. It's the same word we see uh, in, in, uh, that's representing the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the same word used to describe Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. So caught up is an important word. Paul says that's what happened to him, and that was an act of grace, not because he deserved it, and, and, and in that, the Lord, desiring to have the apostle with him for a time, removed him from the world. And that's a pretty important thing. And we saw that same thing repeated when you get to verse 3. Look there in chapter 12, verse 3. And I know how such a man, and again, the parenthetical part, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows. Verse 4, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. And so he repeats what he said, and he adds, I know how this happened. Present active indicative, I know all about this because I was there, and it continues to impact my life today. I, I don't know if it was in my body or just in my spirit, but I still know what happens. And then again, he says, I was caught up, that's our word again, caught up and taken into paradise, it says. And so that's an important, that's an important part of this new part of the revelation of this vision that he saw. Paradise equals heaven. He uses it in parallel with the third heaven. That's the word Paul's carried along to use to help us understand more about it. We saw that background of that word is a king's garden. And so we have lots of examples of that from ancient times. And so we noted that if earthly, worldly kings could make remarkable gardens, and as we saw last time, one of them was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Imagine what the king of kings, the king of the universe, can make. And so he calls Paul up there to meet with him in the garden. And Paul says, I was called up to paradise, which further really defines heaven for us, does it not? It helps us understand a little bit more about the place God's prepared for us. We know biblically that the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. And paradise would indicate that Paul was able to be there in companionship with God while he was there. And that's part of the nature of life in heaven. And Paul was, he said, again, a man in Christ, an ordinary believer, redeemed by grace through faith. No one special. He didn't get to go to heaven because of what he'd accomplished. And and always humble, see, like the turtle on the fence post. He knows he's just a run-of-the-mill Christian. He knows that if something happened, it wasn't because he was good. It was because God was good. It wasn't because something was going to go on in his life later and God wanted to reward him. It's simply the fact that God chose for a time to bring Paul there. And last time we looked through, which we won't do again today, some of the reasons perhaps that Paul was allowed to do these kinds of things. And then we saw in verse 4, it says, was caught up to paradise, so he repeats the environment of heaven, the place where he was caught up to, and he adds, and I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So no one knows what he heard. And he said uh, they are the Greek adjective eretos, which that's the word that means cannot be spoken, or it could mean uh, must not be spoken, and I think it means both here because later in verse 4 it says uh, he's not permitted to speak and he cannot speak. And not, it's not that it was in some foreign language. It's not perhaps because he didn't understand it. Perhaps it's because he couldn't express it in English. And then on top of that, the Lord said, I don't want you to say what you saw. And so apart from what he was able to share, that's all we get. 
And then he says in verse 5, and look there if you would, just follow along with me. It's very important that you do this with us. This is how we teach the Word of God, verse by verse, word by word. And so that's the way we're supposed to study it. We don't skip over huge sections. So you should be digging in as well. Uh, my, one of my desires, just as a side, is when we teach the Word of God, if you just walk out and say, I really enjoyed that sermon and, and that was really encouraging to me, but you didn't learn more about how to go about Bible study on your own, then I failed. So what I want to do really, and I've reminded you of this before, is just encourage you in your Bible study to go this way, to read through the Bible, understand what it says, what does it mean by what it says, how does that apply, and so that's part of what, what we do here. So open up your Bible if you would. If you don't have it open, go ahead and open, and then it says in verse 5, he says, on behalf of such a man, again, just a normal average Christian, again, he's just referring to himself again, I will boast. Now, he's still speaking in the third person. And, and he's talking about himself, but he, but he is talking about the simple Christian saved by grace who was given the privilege of visiting the abode of God. Uh, the guy that he knew never deserved, imagined, or requested it, and he's going to boast about that guy who received a blessing of incomparable splendor to stay in heaven. He wanted to make sure, though, that they knew he had no superiority. Uh, so he can glory in that guy. That's why he talks in the third person. I'm going to glory in this person who didn't deserve to go there because he knows himself well and he won't glory in himself or anything God's empowered him to do on earth. But he can glory in the guy that God in his great love and mercy caught away temporarily out of the world and allowed to see and hear heaven without assuming any special merit on himself. So that's really how he approaches that. And that's kind of why he does this in the third person. It's almost as if he separates himself. I know who I am, he says. So this person God blessed is just because God desired to bless that person, not because he had anything to offer. The, the experience wasn't a reward for services rendered to the Lord. And you can see how Paul could easily say that, right? I mean, if he really wanted to boast and put false teachers to shame, he could just say, I got to go to heaven because of what I've done for the Lord. And that would seem like a big blow, right? So I think it helps us understand the motive, the humility that we see, and, and this strange pattern of speech as you work your way through, and you have to get to chapter, uh, verse 7 before you even realize he's still speaking about himself as a recipient of a vision. Someone other than the chief of sinners and the most common of believers got to have it, which is why he says, I'll boast in that guy. And again, why the overabundant humility? We've talked about this months ago, but you know, why not recount what he's achieved in Jesus? Why not? And people do it. It's, it's not wrong. Uh, Paul says it's not profitable, but it isn't a sin. But why not just recount what he's achieved? And, and you can imagine that that option perhaps has, has gone through the apostle's mind a few times. Because he's looking at false teachers, he's seeing all the falseness that's coming out of that. He knows that these are people who are trained by the evil one, and they're just kind of saying false doctrine and leading the church away. And if he wants to get on top of the pile, why not just say, hey, I've done a bunch of things. All those long years of self-sacrifice for the master with more to follow. What about the established churches that he's, he's placed with, and the writing, and the education, and, and, and this trip to heaven? I mean, why not just say, you know, hey, I'm way above you because I've done these things and I've accomplished these things. Well, a couple of things, and, and I think from 1 Corinthians, we are reminded of this as we think about Paul as he has his approach to ministry. 1 Corinthians 4, 4 through 7, and I'll just put these passages up there just quickly. This is just something to think about, perhaps, as Paul, as you think about, man, Paul had so much to say. He could have said so many positive things. He never said any of them, but here's the first one. Paul's willing to wait and allow Jesus, and not himself, to have the final word on his work. That's not a bad thing, is it? 
You don't really know as a minister if you're really doing it right. Your desire, if you're walking in the Word of God each day and controlled by the Spirit, your desire is to be doing it right. But you, you don't really know, right? I mean, when it ultimately comes down to every situation you have to deal with and, and the people you have to deal with and all the things that come into the ministry and into play, you, you would really like to say, I've done this flawlessly. And Paul says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. And I think most ministers could say that if they're walking in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, not if they're in open sin, obviously. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. Paul says, just because I don't see anything that I've done wrong, it doesn't mean that I haven't done anything. But the one who examines me is whom? The Lord, right? Things are not always as they seem. You know, Paul, Paul let's back up. Paul is, not, Paul is willing to wait and have Jesus have the final say on his work. He's not conscious of anything, but he wants to wait. And that's not a bad thing. So he doesn't, have to, he doesn't come out and say, I did all these things. I, I accomplished all these things, these churches, you know, because Christ may have something else to say about that work, okay? Things are not always as they seem. You saw the slide already. Obviously illustrated by the false apostles who are so successful and so powerful. They always are. False teachers are so successful, always powerful, always on top of everything. God's always revealed stuff to them, right? Paul doesn't do any of that. So he says to the church, way back in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and each man's praise will come to him from God. Because motive is part of what you do, isn't it? It's not just the things that you do, it's why you did them. And when we went through this passage, as, I, as we were talking about the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, I told you just serving in the church is not by itself guarantee that you're actually building with gold, silver, and costly stone. Because motive is weighed. If you're just doing it because somebody expects you to or because nobody else will or whatever other attitude you may bring, you're just, bringing, you're just building with wood, hay, and stubble. And so Paul says, listen, you can judge before the time and he even applies it to himself. Or you can just wait and see if what you, well, that wing you threw on on your house that's built on the foundation of Christ is actually built out of the things that it's supposed to be built out of. And so this is, these are things that are, I think, important. And one of the reasons that it plays, they play such a, a valuable uh, part of, of Paul's evaluation of himself. And then this one, it's easy to think you accomplish stuff on your own because of your talent or your special skills or the things you bring to the table, right? I mean, and everybody struggles with this. We talked about it last time, didn't we? That you, you have some gifts, obviously. Every believer, if, and when they come to Christ, it receives a spiritual gift, is able to do some things they couldn't have done before salvation. You bring some talent to the table and some background that you bring in, and, and it's easy to evaluate ourselves and think, I bring a lot to the table. I bring a lot to the church. There's a lot of value in my being here. Well, Paul has some things to think about that. He says, no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against another, for who regards you as superior? <laughs> and what's the rhetorical question? answer no one no one does okay what do you have that you didn't receive nothing that's the rhetorical answer you don't have anything you didn't receive see and if you did receive it why do you boast as if you had not received it in other words as if you yourself by your own merit or your or your creativity or your your brain you bring stuff to the table that everybody needs paul just takes the the legs right under that out, out from under that argument and then this one and he said this numerous times Paul knows that anything he says to his credit will never be mentioned in the church by false teachers. You know, when you're up against people who just want to run you down, it doesn't matter what you're going to say. They're never going to say good things about you. And that's just kind of, uh, that's axiomatic in the church. You know, if you're doing something good and somebody's against you, they're never going to say you did this thing good, see. And, and he reminded the church, you know what? Um, we are your 
reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. At some point, he says, in the day of our Lord Jesus, you'll realize what I did was your, to your benefit. See, But it might have to wait until the kingdom comes. And many people who minister understand that. You minister in difficult places all your life. Uh, you don't know, right? Missionaries are bumping into this all the time. They may labor faithfully over a long period of time, but never know until the kingdom comes the impact that they had. And it may not come from where they thought it was going to come from. But this is the nature of it. And so this, this influences how Paul relates to the church. And there are many others we could talk about. We could take all of our time up just doing this, but we're not going to. They're going to know the truth eventually, but right now they're, they're just going to look at, at anything Paul says in his favor as just pretense. Just, it's going to be just pathetic. Right, Paul? I mean, we know you. So, he just keeps it humble. You know, he just says again, you know, I didn't do anything. He says, on my own behalf, I will not boast. He says, except in regard to my weaknesses. He's perfectly fine with that. And we're going to move into, this next section is a very important, I think a very important section in the Word of God because it's going to talk about why Paul thinks that's the most important thing. Because he knows for the most part that people in the church, they've been taken captive temporarily where he is and there's this painful social rejection. They, they do not want to be around him. They have very critical things to say about him, very hurtful things about him. And every guy in the ministry feels that from time to time. It's just part and parcel of the life Jesus calls you to. So many times he gives you, though, a wife and he gives you a family and they become your sanctuary, they become your refuge because a lot of times the church is not that place. Paul didn't have a wife, he didn't have a family, and so his encouragement came from whom? From Barnabas, right? From John Mark, you know, other Silas, Aquila, Priscilla, you know, he, he came from other ministers. That's where he found his encouragement. That's why he would come away with them. That's why he would work with them. He needed that shelter from the constant bombardment that comes from the church and the rejection that they had, had given to him. So he clarifies that in, in verse 6. He goes this. He says this. Listen. He goes, on my own behalf, I won't boast except in regard to my weakness. For if I do wish to boast, I won't be foolish. I'll be speaking the truth. He says, you know, as opposed to false teachers, if I boast in what I've accomplished, what I can do, what I've seen, I'll be speaking the truth. I mean, anything that I've accomplished, it's not false. You know, what if he desired to place his numerous spiritual experiences before the people in order to impress them, right? If I did that, Paul said, I, far from being foolish, I would do no more than just tell the truth. So it's not that Paul hasn't accomplished anything. It's not that he doesn't think the things that he's done are valid and were what the Lord wanted him to do. I just would just say the truth. The problem was with that tactic, it would likely be counterproductive for the reasons we just mentioned. You know, we should really wait to the final outcome and the Lord will judge it. Things aren't always what they seem and Paul knows this as it applies to himself. It's easy to think you did it on your own and so, you know, by your talents and your special skills, you know, and anything he's going to say to his credit is just going to be just pushed off. So, they wouldn't be wise enough to tell the difference between the truth that Paul says and then the falseness of the false teachers. The church wouldn't be able to discern. That's what it said in 2 Corinthians eleven nineteen. You're so wise, you tolerate foolishness gladly. So he's going to, if he came and just said the truth about his life, they wouldn't be able to discern it anyway. And so he just says, listen, it's just, it's okay. I'll just wait till the Lord judges me. Now, move on if you would, verse 6. 
He says, for if I do wish to boast, I'll not be foolish, for I'll be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this and mark this. And this is probably the most important reason he doesn't relate his experiences. Here it is. I refrain from this. Why? So that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And that is our sixth mark of a faithful minister. It goes with our previous list, certainly. He doesn't want people to think more of him than they know to be in him. He doesn't want to say all the things he's accomplished so that they'll value him higher than what will come out of his mouth. That's really the opposite of false teachers, isn't it? They want their bio to be very clear about how great they are. Just read the back of the book. I mean, they're going to make sure they tout all of their experiences and everything they've ever done and everybody who thinks they're great. And then come read my book because now you have a very high opinion of me. Paul says, I don't want any of that. See, I don't want any of that. So that's our sixth mark of a faithful minister. In Paul's case, a true apostle. He doesn't care about a reputation or admiration or people thinking he's powerful. He, he doesn't want them to think more about him than they do the message of the gospel that he brings. He doesn't want his own persona to eclipse the message. That's why when he came first in 1 in Corinthians, we read, I knew nothing except Christ and him crucified. In Philippians, he says, you know, all those things that I knew and everything I counted them as rubbish that I may know Christ. See, he was perfectly fine with that. Just cares about a good testimony in front of the people who knew him. He doesn't want his hearers to be so impressed with his self-advertisement that they'd be more inclined to follow him than the message that he wants to bring of salvation and sanctification. And again, just let the church regard the apostle in himself as no more than an average believer saved by grace, a turtle on a fence post. He didn't get there by himself. Now let's look at the next several verses. Look at verse, pick up in verse 7 if you would. Verse 7 says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, as you read that, beloved, as you come off of the things we've studied, that's a very powerful section of Scripture inside the walking the hard road section of spiritual warfare. And it, it's a wonderful section not because of the complexity of it, which it is complex, and, and that thorn in the flesh has been rhapsodized by hundreds and hundreds of commentators and and i think because you know it's his eyes it's his hands it's his skin it's you know just by the very definition of the fact that there are 35 references to the thorn of the flesh and they're all different none of them can be true okay obviously it's not clear enough for us to know that and we're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come but the fact of the matter is this it's a wonderful section because we get to learn about god's purposes in Suffering. That's the overreaching message. Whether it was whatever the thorn of flesh was, and I'll give you some things I think that, that fit the context as, as best as we can. Apart from the difficulty that afflicted Paul, whatever it was, there are some universal truths here that benefit the church 
throughout the ages. This is one of those key texts that help us understand the reason for suffering. Why do good, bad things happen to people? And what is God's purpose in them? And there are a number of places in, in, uh, in the scriptures about that because we know one thing for sure, trouble is part of being human. And, and here's the thing. We, we don't know what everyone goes through, do we? Some people want to make sure everybody knows their trouble. And, and so they throw it out there and trouble, trouble, trouble. Everybody has to know what I go through. Others have a lot of trouble and difficulty and they don't share any of it except with the Lord, obviously. In Job chapter 5 or 7, here's a man who knows something about trouble, wouldn't you say? We, we read this, for man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Is trouble part of our life? Sure. It is. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is talking about it, and, and I think you could just say everyone will, that everyone will have trouble in this life is axiomatic. Uh, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Matthew six thirty four. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Jesus' words, each day has enough, what, trouble on its own. So there's plenty of trouble to go around. Everybody has it. A lot of people talk about it, so it seems like they have more. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that trouble is part of being human. It's axiomatic to say they're going to have trouble in this life. Jesus himself said it numerous times. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, oppressing pressure. Be of good cheer, cheer. I've overcome the world. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. So don't worry about trouble that's still on the horizon. There's plenty of trouble for each day. And trouble comes from all kinds of different directions. Uh, number one, we know we live in a fallen world that groans and can cause us trouble. We know that, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 22 and 23. For we know that the whole world, a whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until together until now. The whole creation groans under the weight of sin, and it causes trouble, doesn't it? There are a couple of hurricanes rolling across the Atlantic right now. We don't know where they're going to where they're going to roll up. We know that there's volcanoes going off. We know that there's uh, tornadoes that happen in the Midwest. We, you know, floods happening in Pennsylvania. I mean, this trouble is part of the cursed world. It wasn't the way the Lord created it, but under the weight of sin that came from mankind, the world was cursed too, and it struggles and groans. So we know trouble that comes from a bunch of different places. And not just that, Paul tells the church in Rome, no secrets when he says we have trouble with the results of sin in our own body, don't we? Even with the Holy Spirit living in us, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. So born again people, we ourselves grown within ourselves, we're going to struggle in this life, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. Why do we wait for that, beloved? My son and I were having this conversation two days ago in the car on the way to school. Part of the rapture and the glorified body is that you won't sin anymore. Isn't that great? For those of us who continue to sin, and I think all of us fit that category. In case you don't think you do, you do. Okay, so just join us. But it's going to be really great to have a glorified body, isn't it? And we talked about, you know, the eternal state, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And he asked, so we'll have, a, we'll have a glorified body then. That's correct. We won't be able to sin. That's correct. We'll be living on this earth doing the Lord's bidding and during that thousand years, but we won't have an ability to sin. And that's a pretty remarkable thing, isn't it? Because right now, we have it in spades, don't we? The ability to sin and the desire to in some respects because in the flesh is where those things lodge themselves and we have a difficult time putting to death the deeds of the flesh and walking in the Spirit. So trouble comes as a result of our own sinfulness and our, our decisions that we make. And they may, it may come just from 
you know, a cause and effect. There's a spiritual law, and if you break it, there's some effect coming from it physically. And it may come from the Lord chastening you, and you may have trouble because you continue to walk in disobedience, and the Lord has to get your attention. So there can be physical ailments, certainly, in this, in this body that's cursed. It can be trouble we inflict on ourselves because of our own vices and rebelliousness, sowing to the flesh and reaping back corruption and the consequences of it. And we have remorse over our own sin, and we have personal shame and personal guilt and personal anguish over personal sin, and which has already been dealt with, by the way, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. But we still have those kinds of things, and we bear those burdens. So trouble is part of our life, and it comes from a number of different places. We see trouble come from another source. We can see trouble comes as a result of being a minister to the church. And this, I say this because this is Paul's precise location now, where Paul finds himself. That was Paul's point from 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29. Apart from such external things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak and who's led into sin with my, without my intense concern? So there's this pressure on Paul and trouble on Paul. Uh, the word is the word for dealing with a rebellion. That's what it means, daily pressure. A daily rising up, if you will, a regular assault, dealing with sin in the church, empathizing with the weak, uh, the rejection that Paul and every minister has to deal with socially for in the church. Listen, this is all part and parcel of where trouble can come from. So we're, we have no lack of trouble. And, you know, as I think about this, and I've told you this before, something about Jonathan Edwards, and if you've read any of his stuff, you know how remarkable it is. But He's a great illustration of, of this trouble that comes from being a minister. We can certainly relate it to Paul's position because um, it's a very well-known circumstance. It illustrates trouble that inevitably comes in the church. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest, arguably, theologians America has ever known. Very powerful teacher, had a wonderful mind, a great grasp of theology. You can still read the things that he wrote and learn tremendous amounts of things about them and about the Lord and about his work. He, he is known in America in history as a great theologian of the Great Awakening, a great American revival. It was he that God used to preach through those years of the Great Awakening to turn hearts of thousands uh, from their sin into Jesus and salvation. He was all of those things, of course, but foremost, uh, he was a pastor. He succeeded his grandfather and pastored the First Church of Northampton, Massachusetts, for 22 years. And so... It was during those 22 years that the Great Awakening occurred, so he was pastoring right through the Great Awakening and basically preaching to his own people week in and week out those profound messages that were used so powerfully by the Lord in the United States. Life-changing, nation-changing messages, 22 years, those people came Sunday after Sunday and sat at the feet of Jonathan Edwards. For the last four of those 22 years, you may know this, Edwards held that before a person could join the church or take communion, he had to be a believer. That doesn't seem so, so far-fetched, does it? Before you could join the church or take communion, you had to make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, we take that for granted, don't we? We would say that that is how it's supposed to be. But, beloved, because of that, the church voted to remove him as their pastor. They kicked him out of the church they took the greatest preacher in American history, certainly one of the godliest men the world knew at that time, and they threw him out of the church. And it wasn't because he became unqualified according to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, or because he embraced progressivism or some other heretical viewpoint. Nope, they put him out of the church because he was convinced of the biblical position on those two points we just mentioned. That's pretty basic, right? And, and for that, the people who had sat at his feet for 22 years threw him out of the church. 
It's amazing the pain that friends and church can cause those who minister to it. And you could certainly conclude, as you read that from history, that some of them hadn't spent a whole lot of time listening to his sermons for very long. Right? Sin can cause a lot of trouble, and it can be very stubborn. And here's this great preacher without a pulpit, and they wanted to make sure he didn't get one ever again, so they didn't stop by just kicking him out of the church. They attempted to destroy his reputation, including some of his pastor friends who misrepresented him and lied about him so that no other church would take him. Now, arguably, after the pain and betrayal and trouble that came at the hands of his friends and some in the church, Edwards wrote some of his most important work after being kicked out. And shortly before he died, he became president of what is now Princeton University. That's amazing by itself, isn't it? Considering where it is now. However, after the ordeal, he had real trouble believing he was qualified or adequate for any job, let alone the one in Princeton. And we read all of that and we understand in the light of Scripture We know the hand of the Lord was in all of this for his own glory, for his own purposes. The church there in Northampton was not innocent. The Lord would hold them guilty of what they did incorrectly and the things that were lied about and all that was said. But we know that the Lord works those things for his good, right? We understand the hand of the Lord in all of it. It was just absurd that a congregation of people could do what they did to him. He was a broken, humbled man for the remaining years of his life. He wasn't at Princeton very long before he died. And so... We say that trouble can come from all different directions, and Paul is dealing with trouble in the church, hardship in the church, and he's dealing with trouble because of what he's been able to experience. So trouble can come from all over. It certainly comes from inside the church, and that's Paul's trouble now. And then trouble can come on the plane that is hidden from our physical eyes, the spiritual realm. As Paul talks to the church and is encouraging them in Rome, that in the midst of trouble, we shouldn't interpret that as being separated from God's love. That's really the essence of Romans 8.33. It really becomes a list where we might expect to have trouble. Verse 33 says this. Paul says to the church, he says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to do that? No one, because God's the one that justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Well, Christ Jesus is he who died and rather was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So Christ had the right to condemn, and what did he do? He went to the cross and was raised for our sin, right? So he's not going to do it. So charges and accusations and condemnations of which we are deemed not guilty, mostly thinking of a divine courtroom, certainly in the physical world too. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now we know what the intent of the passage is. Who's going to separate us? How will we know if we've been separated? Is there anything that can separate us best? I think it's best. Is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? That's the intent of the passage, God's unfailing love for the redeemed. But the list here, beloved, gives us an idea from where trouble may come. Will tribulation, that's adversity that's common to everyone, pressing pressure, or distress, that's a narrow place from which there is no escape. It's similar to the word we looked about, uh, talked about before with Paul, as he has hardship. That means it's something that you're not going to be out of. It's something that will plague your entire life. It might be in the mission uh, In the mission category, it might be just a hardship of being somewhere and doing the ministry that doesn't get any easier, and it won't get any easier. For you or for me, it may be a physical thing. It may be a spiritual thing. It may be a relationship thing. So it's just a distress, a narrow place from which there's no escape. Or persecution, we understand that, for the name of Christ. Or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And millions of people deal with that every single day. 
Just because we don't doesn't mean that's not going on right this minute somewhere else. And so those things are certainly part of it, and, and that just sounds like a list that Paul had to endure, right? We just read it a few moments ago, that he endured hardship, he endured peril, he endured sword, famine, not having enough clothes. And so Paul understands this very well. That's part of the trouble that can come. Will those separate us from the love of Christ? No. Verse 36, just as it's written, he says, for your sake we're being put to death all day long, and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how Paul described his own life. And certainly that describes the lives of many missionaries and many believers all around the world. Every day could be the day that they're going to see their death. In all these things, verse 37, we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now verse 38, for I am convinced you're going to overwhelmingly conquer because you will be delivered out of all that permanently someday and the Lord will reward you richly for all of that that you've gone through. So he's not wasting any of those things, see, and we say that often. God doesn't waste any difficulty, doesn't waste any hardship. If it's in your life, it's for a purpose. He's going to use it for his glory. He's not going to waste it, and you will overwhelmingly conquer. So, all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither, and he's just going to give a quick list, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. Now mark that. That's the spirit world of fallen angels and demons. Those things will not overcome you. Those will not separate you and can't separate you nor things present, so whatever is around you currently, nor things to come, what's over the horizon that you may be worried about, nor powers, that's miraculous, or persons in positions of authority. That's just what it's talking about there. Somebody in authority over you who may have uh, negative things in store for you, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing, so anything in the universe with the exception of God who isn't created, so anything. So in case we missed anything in the list that may cause you trouble, and you say, well, what about this? That just covers it, okay? So Anything in the universe, except for God, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he already clarified at the beginning that neither of them would be doing it. But there, what you have is, you know, those are not secrets to you. Those are things that you're, you're acquainted with. That's just the way it is. We're fallen creatures. We live in a fallen world. Satan and his demons have temporary dominion over this world. Albeit for believers, there's no unrestricted access. But there is access, and the Lord certainly uses uh, demons to to perfect us and bring things on us. And we're going to see that's precisely what Paul's going to be talking about here. But we are not able to personally insulate ourselves from a universe of trouble and fallen people and a fallen world. It's not possible. And we shouldn't expect it that we'll be insulated from it. And that, of course, leads us to emotional trouble and marital trouble and family trouble and physical trouble and financial trouble. And it goes on and on and on. And it's just part of life. And, and we're usually in or just emerging from or anticipating some trouble, right? It's one of those things. That's how the world is. And so what we're going to see in our passage is God's purposes in it. I just want to make sure that it just included all of us, okay? Me included. We just took a really big scoop and just scooped everybody up and just said, okay, trouble is part of your life. You should expect it to be. In fact, God has good purposes for it. We've seen some of them, but we're going to see one here. It's just as remarkable as all the rest. But here's a few of the things that we've looked at already. A number of these passages instruct us on how to deal with trouble and what God plans to accomplish in our lives through it. And not the least of which, of course, is 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. We studied that a few years ago. I want to just bring it to your attention, and I'm not going to expound on it because it's pretty straightforward. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That is so great to know that that's part of his name, mercy and comfort. Who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those 
who are in any affliction with a comfort which, which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's the purpose of your difficulty according to that passage? Number one, to be comforted by God. And number two, what? You know this. To provide comfort for someone else. That by itself is enough to explain the reason why difficulty may come to your life. So God can comfort you and you can learn how to comfort someone else. If we just learned that lesson, beloved, if we just learned that lesson, that you had, you know, not minimizing your difficult life, okay? Not minimizing the things that you went through at all. They were horrible, no doubt. But God is able to comfort you and through that comfort, you learned how to or should have learned how to comfort someone else. How about James chapter 1, verse 3? Another place we've studied in the past. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when your faith is tested by some difficult thing that happens to you, let endurance have its perfect result. God wants you to endure difficult things for his glory. Have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So difficult times are looked at as a testing of our faith, and the outcome of that trial is to produce endurance. And when we learn how to endure in joy, we're beginning to look like the person God has in mind for us. It's just really straightforward, isn't it? Trouble is all part of everybody's life. God has his purposes in it. There's two, okay? And we saw exactly the same thing from Romans 5.3. Not only this, we exalt in our tribulation. Those two words seem like they're oxymoronic, right? We, exalting in tribulation. We, we don't really want to exalt in tribulation. We want to commiserate with somebody. We want to make sure people know that we're a victim. We want to make sure that we draw attention to the fact that we've been through a very hard time. That's what we'd like. And people say, well, I wish you didn't have to go through that. And you can definitely say that and still be spiritual. I am so sorry that you're going through this hard time because it's hard for you. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says, exalt in our tribulation. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. These are things that God wants you to have. He wants you to have perseverance. Stick with itness, if you will. And perseverance brings about proven character, and God's all about that, right? So difficult times bring about perseverance and proven character. So that has to do with silver that's being cooked out and all the dross is skimmed off so that you're perfect. So what's God's plan for you with trouble? Well, it's to make sure that you're pure. And trouble does that to us, doesn't it? And we know this. When we get into trouble, what's the first, if, you're, if you walk with the Lord, what's the first thing that happens when you have trouble? It's like Daniel. You go back to your house, and what do you do? Right? I mean, you may do it right on your way home. Lord, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle this, but I know this is from your hand. It's not certainly what I would pick for myself, but I want to do what you want me to do, and I need wisdom on how to deal with this. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the response God wants from you, see? And certainly trouble will push us to the throne almost immediately. That's not a bad thing. God wants that for us, see? And then proven character gives us hope, and hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We know these things come from the loving hand of our Father, and he has our best interest in mind. And in the middle of trouble, which comes from all different sources, and we're not immune to it, and we can't insulate ourselves from it, God has his purposes, okay? And we can keep going. We'll just stop with Romans 12, 12, because we're almost out of time. Paul says, rejoice in hope, and then mark this, persevere in tribulation. Exactly the same thing. Stick with it, okay? Trouble is part of the human condition. Like sparks rise up, so man is born to trouble. Be of good cheer. In the world, you're going to have trouble. I've overcome the world. I mean, Jesus had plenty to say about that. 
And so it seems clear as we get to our passage and we understand what Paul's been carried along to convey that we're going to come to another great example of what God intends as an outcome of trouble. Mark this from whatever source it may be. Because it doesn't really matter what the source is, does it? What really matters is, is that God is accomplishing his purposes in difficulty in this life and in suffering in this life. And it's not a mark of God must not be concerned about me. It might just instead be a mark that God is concerned that you make yourself in your responses more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That you become perfected and be able to be used by him in such a way more powerfully than you would have been before you went through the difficult times because God doesn't waste any of those. See, And we've seen that outcome comes to us consistently from the word of God. That's not, that's not a secret. We understand God's purposes and suffering in a bunch of different places. And we really just laid the groundwork today for these four verses because they are so important, yet not without precedent in the Word of God. But I want you to see this. This is not about what the thorn in the flesh was. This is about the response that Paul learned from the Lord, which made him able to do the things God had for him to do in a way that was pleasing to him. See, Now look at the first part of of uh, verse 7. We're going to get right out of this right now. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was giving me a thorn in the flesh. So Paul has relayed his physical difficulties and troubles that he had to endure, and those were his boasts that assured his readers that he was a true apostle. And he has relayed the daily pressure on him of all the churches and the spiritual and the mental pressure brought to bear because of that and how it brought trouble to him and the rejection that came from the church and his concern for the health of the church and that set uh, him apart from false teachers because they don't really care about the church and they don't care about the reputation of the church, they care about their own reputation. And then we get we, we to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, boasting is necessary, although it's not profitable, but I had visions and revelations from the Lord. And then he says, 14 years prior, I was given this remarkable vision and a revelation that nobody knew about, a trip to heaven, a trip to paradise. And, and so in, in verse 7, he says, because of the, here it is, surpassing greatness of the revelation. So this vision and the revelation were so wonderful. And, and the word surpassing greatness, hyperbole. And, and we understand that word, don't we? We, we know uh, that's a figure of speech for us in the English language, which means an exaggerated statement. Claims not meant to be taken literally. But that's where the word comes from. So we understand how Paul is using it. He just expounds on how, here it is, exceedingly great the revelation and the visions were. And the word literally means a throwing beyond. So hooper is over and balo is to throw. So the idea, if you think about games, you would think about a javelin throw that eclipsed everything that came before it, so much so that we didn't even think about any of those before. Or a discus throw that so eclipsed everybody who threw before him that nobody's thinking about anything where anybody landed before, because this is so far out there. That's the idea, Paul says. It's a vision that's completely beyond all comparison. And if you think about Paul's life, that's pretty amazing because he got to see Jesus on the Damascus Road, and that seemed pretty over the top to me. But beyond all of that, this thing he's kept a secret for 14 years that he just reveals is so far beyond. He got to go to the very presence of the dwelling place of God and the true home of every believer. And someday, I think we'll relate in some small way when we see heaven what Paul had experienced beforehand and had to keep to himself with the exception of just saying this happened. And because it was so great, the vision was so great for this reason. Here he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me, here it is, a thorn in the flesh. So what was the reason for the trouble? 
Was it Paul was a sinner? No. Was it because he was accumulating uh, uh, chastening from the Lord because he kept going back to a rebelliousness? No. Was it because of a cursed world? No. Was it because of the church and because it caused him so much trouble? No. Those are all sources of trouble, certainly. Was it, was it uh, uh, the world and that, you know, him struggling getting through these mountain passes and going to these places and freezing? No. It actually had something to do with what the Lord allowed Paul to do. And I just think this is so amazing, see, because we would think that this is a punishment of some kind, this trouble. But Paul says, I was given this thorn in the flesh, and don't mistake that, something very severe. And he was certainly aware that he didn't want the church to exalt him, but God, God mark it, was additionally concerned about something else. What was it? Paul's continued humility and his growth as a believer through difficulty and trouble. Mark that, beloved. That's what God was concerned about, Paul's continued growth. The saints might not be alone in elevating Paul to this level above his accustomed proper station if they understood everything that he would got to do. And even the memory of that in Paul's own mind might make for an arrogant Paul. And that would inhibit his ministry both to the Lord and to the church. So as a merciful, if you will, prophylactic, because that's already known by the Lord, he has this difficulty placed on Paul. And you know, as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, you might have said, maybe Paul said first, Lord, could we wait and see if I get arrogant before I get this? I mean, wouldn't you say that? I mean, it's like, it's like your kid. I mean, you're, I'm going to give you a spanking because I don't want you to do this thing in a minute. It's like, what? I haven't done anything yet, right? It's a spank account, kid. Just, it's a spank account. You know, I, we're, we're, over, we're overpaid. No, I mean, you'd want to think that, and maybe that's how Paul prayed at first. Lord, is it possible that we could wait until I was arrogant, and then you bring this on me, you know? And then it was, Lord, please take it away from me. And then again, somehow, Lord, please take it away from me. And the Lord says, I'm not going to take it away from you. Why? Because my strength is perfected in weakness. And beloved, this is where we're going, okay? God's purposes in your difficulty may be that his what? That his strength is going to be perfected in weakness that you have to endure. And that fits right in with everything else we just saw about God's purposes and suffering, doesn't it? What is the thorn in the flesh? What was the trouble? Well, you're going to have to stick with this study and come back to get that. Because we're going to have some breaks in the study. We've got GOMAD training next week and we've got a men's retreat. But just stick with us, okay? I think it'll be worth your while as you mark these things down. All right, let's pray and be dismissed. We're out of time. Lord, we thank you today for the blessing of being together. We thank you for your word and for the time that we can spend studying it and for your purposes in suffering and difficulty. This is not a secret, uh, Father. Uh, to, for a believer to be able to answer someone who says, well, I, I don't believe in God because there's so much suffering in the world. These are so easy answers, so clear from your word. Lord, help us to be clear about those kinds of things and not be troubled in any way about those kinds of things. And Lord, I pray that we kind of church, you want us to be understanding your purposes for our life and how you want us to, to act and, and to, to be. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.